Everybody, it's Emily Nagoski. And Amelia Nagoski. And this is the Feminist Survival Project 2020. This episode is going to be posted on the Monday of the week of Thanksgiving here in the United States. And we have already had lots of requests for how to talk to people you disagree with. And by people you disagree with, we mean family members, romantic partners, friends, unignorable strangers. And so, so we're going to talk about that, but it's not going to be like the usual conversation about how to talk to your racist or otherwise awful relatives, because this is not a podcast about how to end racism or homophobia or transphobia or xenophobia or capitalism or even misogyny. Even though it's a feminist podcast, this is about you surviving, surviving. while you work to be part of the solution. We assume that you're already motivated on some level to create positive change, and we assume that you're a human being with limited time and energy whose relationship with the people you choose to eat with on a holiday matter enough that you don't want to write those people off. So, the first thing we want to recognize is that you can mostly let go of the idea that anything you say or do on Thanksgiving will change anyone's mind yeah. about anything. That's not going to happen. Is yeah. there anything anyone could say, Amelia, that would change your mind nope. about nope. climate change nope. or nope. election nope. financing? Nope. Nothing anyone nope. says to me will make me change my mind about abortion. I think it should be available readily on demand. I think yeah. we should tax the shit out of guns and use whatever money that is to, to fund abortion for undocumented immigrants. immigrants. Yeah, totally. Right? Refugees and yeah. Mm -hmm. And nothing anyone could say would change my mind about that. Nope. Nope. So remember that if nothing anyone could say could change your mind, that's a valuable piece of self-awareness to bring into your holiday plan because it's probably also true that nothing you say or do is going to change any of your terrible relatives' minds about anything. Unfortunately. The second thing we want to say, you have limited energy, so it matters what you spend it on. And this is where I'm going to tell an anecdote. Uh, back in 2013, there was this kerfuffle about whether or not we should be telling college women not to drink to prevent sexual assault. The arguments went either, yes, we should, because getting women drunk is a primary tactic of sexual predators. And if women didn't drink, then they wouldn't be victimized. Or, no, we shouldn't, because women's drinking isn't what causes sexual assault. It's predators predating. That's the cause of sexual assault. And telling women not to drink is making the victim responsible for their own assault. So at the time, I was the person on my campus responsible for creating the sexual violence prevention programming. And my answer to this question of whether or not we should tell college women not to drink to prevent sexual assault was, I don't care. I don't care whether we should tell women not to drink. I don't care whether or it's right or wrong. What I care about is whether an intervention is likely to be effective at preventing violence. That's all. Anything less would be a waste of my office's resources and my personal time. Anything less would be professionally negligent. It would be an insult to the students whose well-being I serve. Anything less, as far as my conscience was concerned, would be allowing sexual violence to happen. I'm a real person really doing this work. And if telling women not to drink worked to prevent violence, I would do it. I would do it every day at the top of my lungs. It does not. The research is real clear about this and always has been, so it's never what I did. So that's an allegory. 
because there's this whole narrative that you should confront your terrible relatives. It is the right thing to do that you should use your privilege, whatever privilege you have to advocate for people who lack that privilege. And maybe you should. We don't know. Yeah, maybe. To be totally frank, we don't care. We don't care whether you should or not. That's beside the point. And anyway, in these situations, there is no single right thing to do. There's just a mess of compromises to pick from. The only question we want you to consider is not, what should I do? But what's an effective use of my energy? Am I participating in creating the change I want to see? Or am I just shouting at the top of my lungs and not doing anything, but making myself feel righteous and exhausted and depressed without accomplishing the change I want? So, for example, Rachel Cargill, this fabulous educator and activist, wrote a piece for Harper's Bazaar recently with this catalog of helpful scripts. What to say when your racist family member starts talking about Colin Kaepernick or something about all oh, lives matter. matter. And if you're interested in confronting your racist relatives, but you don't know how to articulate anti-racist ideas, these scripts are going to be really helpful for you. We will put a link to it in the show notes. Your racist relative says X, and so you say Y. But let's think through the whole story, past your anti-racist, anti-homophobic, anti-xenophobic, or anti-fascist answer. Suppose your intellectually lazy aunt says something about Mexican immigrants, and you counter with a clear statement about immigration in America. Then what? Does she respond with, you know, I never thought about it that way. Thanks for the insight, hon. Does she engage with you in an honest and open-hearted conversation about living with difference? Or does she mock you in your snowflake sensitivity? Or say that if you could find a boyfriend, maybe you wouldn't spend so much time arguing with your elders? Or sarcastically ask if you want another slice of pie? Or does your mother intervene and say, now, dear, don't start a fight? Because obviously you're the one who Starting started that fight. fight, not the aunt who used the pejorative, pejorative. racist epithet. Mm-hmm. Welcome to human giver syndrome, maybe the biggest barrier to dealing with loved ones you disagree with. We have a whole episode about human giver syndrome. It's episode three. Feel free to give that a listen. But the ultra short version is human giver syndrome is the shared belief that women have a moral obligation. Oh, thunder's being very needy because Mm -hmm. you have a cheese plate. So you could take your cheese and uh, give Thunder the plate on the bed so that she will stay up there with her, okay. with, a, with a cheesy plate. Cheesy plate. Oh, Thunder's happy. Oh, boy. There we go. I hope people can hear her licking in the background because that is the sound of joy. We have a whole episode about this. It's episode three. Feel free to give that a listen. But the ultra short version is human giver syndrome is this cultural belief that women have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Your role as a human giver is to be patient and understanding and attentive and agreeable. It is not to have an opinion of your own. Just by expressing an opinion, never mind contradicting someone else's, just having the opinion and daring to use other people's time and attention to express it, just by doing that, you're already violating your role as a giver and therefore culturally deserve to be punished. So people around you may try to punish you with an ad hominem attack telling you are fat or ugly or a bitch or otherwise unlovable and all the ways that you violate your obligation to be a giver. They will probably try to gaslight you, be condescending, express contempt for you, try to humiliate you because 
by your mere expression of a contradictory opinion, you have tried to humiliate them, is what they will feel. And so they are required, morally, to react with humiliation in turn. So expect it. Plan for it. Know that there is no response you can give to that kind of counterattack that will have any positive impact on them or you. They have already shut down effective communication. That is why our strategies for talking to family members about political issues are not about how to teach your racist family members not to be racist or your homophobic family members not to be homophobic or your fiscal conservative Republicans to pull their heads out of their asses or your libertarian relatives, how capitalism works. Libertarianism is not how capitalism works. Okay, I'm like blowing out the microphone a lot. So I'm going to see, mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is why you don't do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have these three strategies. And may want to tell the nice people about our three strategies. Yep. Number one, how to decide whether to engage or not. Two, how to engage, if you decide to, in a way that's least likely to escalate into something that makes you want to get drunk when you get home, if not sooner, and might even result in positive change of some kind. And number three, how to shut it down if it gets ugly. And we're going to work with this real life example. There was this one time Amelia was hanging out socially with some people, which was her first mistake. And uh, <laughs> the conversation generally was about... It was for work I had to. Gay rights. <laughs> and a person whose opinion she had no information about, but she was a person... It was, it was a person she was in the room with, quietly said the thing that people say. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we should say at this point that Amelia is the idealist between the us. I am entirely almost exclusively interested in what will work. Practical. I'm trained in public health. I am extremely pragmatic. We make a podcast because that seems to be the most effective way to communicate this information. I'm not interested in an ideal way. I just want something that's gonna help. You're, you're okay with making a dent in a problem and I want to blow shit up. Yeah, whereas I know people live there and don't deserve to have to clean up our rubble, in my opinion. I think their lives are already at risk, so yeah, exactly. it's our responsibility to blow that shit up so the shit doesn't kill them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we have different opinions about how important it is and how practical it is to um, engage. Which gives us a good framework for being able to talk about this. So we have a couple of principles for deciding whether or not to engage, especially two really key ideas about when not to engage. And the first one is if people are using binaries. Are they forcing you into an either or scenario? If you feel like they're using these binaries as a way to control and manipulate you, if they're using a binary as a weapon, they're forcing people into a scenario instead of talking about whatever the topic is in terms of spectrums and change and fluidity. If the language people are using is about spectrums and change and fluidity and possibility, then it might be a time to engage. If they're talking in terms of rigid binaries, right or wrong, in-group or enemy, you hereby have permission, officially, not to engage if you don't want to. It's unlikely to result in anything positive, and it could even backfire and reinforce the other person's bullshit ideas. Yeah. There's research on this the thing called yeah. the backfire effect, where the harder you fight to defend a position, the more you reinforce the person who disagrees with you's existing opinion. Yeah. And the second thing to consider is if people are arguing about complex topics about which they are not content experts, 
When you discuss science, lots of people put on their bone-picking hats and start finding things to disagree with. In the connection chapter of burnout, we call this separate knowing, where you extract an idea from its context and analyze it that way, as opposed to connected knowing, where you explore an idea within the framework of the context where it originated. If people are being curious and exploring ideas with a connected knowing, they're acknowledging that they're not experts, that might be a time to engage. But rational arguments of science are supposed to be precise, intricate, and often terribly, terribly specialized. If you are not a content expert, do not try to be one. And if the other person isn't one, don't try to argue about facts with them. Don't bring facts to what is ultimately a feelings fight. Mm -hmm. So to conclude with this portion, you are allowed not to confront people or argue about the things you disagree about all the time. Yes, it is a privilege not to, but if you have the privilege, why not use it to protect your boundaries, your sanity, your energy? Pointing out that it's a privilege is not an argument about why you should not do something. It's just recognizing that not everyone has that choice. But if you do have the choice, you're the one who gets to decide when and how you use your energy. Yes, we are definitely talking about white people with relatives who say shit like, I'm not a racist, but those people are lazy. We're also talking about people of all races with relatives who say, I don't hate homosexuals, I just hate what they do. Oh, people with relatives who say, God makes people male or female, and they should stay that way. Oh, or I won't use they as a singular pronoun because it's not grammatical. Oh. And people who say a woman's worth, I literally had this conversation with someone, a woman's worth comes from the number of children she has. Oh, oh pay inequality is because women choose lower paying <sighs> jobs or they choose to work part time because they want to do oh that God. work. They want to stay home with their children. It's a choice they're making. I want to point out one other thing about when you choose to engage or not to engage, and that is about positive reappraisal. Positive reappraisal is the strategy for dealing with when you succeed or fail at a goal. And if you fail, but like you've worked really hard and you're trying, positive reappraisal is when you decide that the effort you're putting in is worth it. So for me in this context, what that means is when I get home tonight, if I keep my mouth shut, am I going to have to decide that it was worth it? Is that true? Am I going to decide I kept my mouth shut, I let them say their piece, and I kept it a happy family day and nobody had a big fight, nobody threw anything. Is that worth it? For me, it's never worth it. For me, I choose in that moment to create discomfort. I choose confrontation. And a lot of people, when they're in the midst of confrontation, they're very uncomfortable, they feel bad, it hurts them and the people around them. And if they went home later that night, they would say, oh my God, that was not worth it. I just feel terrible about what happened. That's what I do. Yeah. I always feel terrible when I get home after that. I would get home and if I kept my mouth shut, I would feel terrible. People vary. People vary. You gotta choose which one is true for you. So if you choose to engage, let's talk about a way to do it in a way that's least likely, again, to escalate into something where you want to get drunk when you get home, which is what would happen to me under most circumstances. Okay, <laughs> look, if you're going to have this conversation, first remember, know ahead of time that you need to know what your goal is and your goal should not be changing the other person's mind. Mm -hmm. You're not going to convince them. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to achieve? 
by investing this effort. You're not going to change their mind. So do you want it to be that when you get home, you look back on it and think like, I made the right decision I with did that. The right I'm, thing. I'm glad that I did that. I spoke up. Do you? I made a racist uncomfortable. Go me. <laughs> I punched a Nazi. I win. Also know ahead of time that in order to have a conversation that might result in someone changing their mind, you are probably going to be doing some emotional labor. Can I say why I do it? Because there's somebody in that room. There's some kid yeah. who's gay or trans. And what they saw was me telling that person to go fuck themselves. What they saw was me on their side. Oh, my God, somebody in my family's on my side. And even if they're too young to know, like, that's what they needed to see, they will learn that not everyone agrees with Aunt Petunia about trans people. There are also people who are willing to stand and fight with them. Okay, anyway, sorry. That's my goal when I decide to engage, which is about 80% of the time. Yeah. And it's mostly that I engage in a different way. Mm -hmm. I engage in, I do, I do these, these emotional labor things. Mm -hmm. I do the work that means I'll be regulating my own emotional expression to create a context where the other person doesn't feel too uncomfortable. Like, so, so like transphobic Aunt Petunia, you're worried about not making transphobic Aunt Petunia cry. I don't want to escalate the situation emotionally. Right. Not just, not because I don't want to make her uncomfortable per se, but because if she's uncomfortable, she's likely to lash back at me and do say something humiliating or hijack the whole conversation and turn it into, you're laughing at this. Like, yes, yes I'm it. ready for that. Go, like, bring it, bring it, Aunt Petunia. <laughs> Fuck you, bring it. And the, this emotional labor is exactly what human giver syndrome says it is my job to do. And it is not my job and it's not your job. It's just if you want to have these kinds of conversations, instead of just having a fight, you use the skills. So we're just going to talk really quickly about three. And me is like, I'm not going to do any of this. <laughs> nope. I just want the fight. The fight is fine with me. If my stepdaughter's boyfriend comes in and starts saying the things that a Republican says, we are just going to talk about it. Yeah. No, I've literally warned my stepkids. Like, <laughs> if any of you bring home a person who's going to say these things, you need to know. You need to, like, warn them not to say it because you know I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. They know. They 100% know. Skill one. <laughs> Facts do not change people's minds. If you choose direct confrontation and contradiction, you're setting yourself up for a fact fight. Are you an expert in the content area you're talking about? If you are, go for it. There are some things where I feel so confident in my knowledge that I will just go to the facts. Like sex education. Like, what are the consequences of it? But if you're not, it's just going to be you and another imperfectly informed person arguing about facts of which neither of you is master. And I guess people think that's a reasonable way to spend a holiday. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, if you are not an expert in the area, just skip the facts. Confrontation, contradiction, you go instead for the feelings. Skill number two is about a great way to go for the feelings. And that is when you say X, I feel Y. This is a baseline therapy 101 strategy for separating what the person is saying from the impact they are having. We know that a person's intention is not an excuse for doing hurtful things, but it is useful to help them see that the thing they are saying is having an impact that is different from their intention. And sort of like helping them to understand that, look, you're having this impact that I know you would never want to have. 
When you say this, it makes me think of my trans friend who is spending the holidays with other trans friends because none of them are allowed to go home to their families anymore. And I've heard them talk about how sad they feel about that exclusion. So when you say that, it makes me feel. And I know, Aunt Petunia, that you would never want anyone to feel isolated and like they're not even allowed to go home anymore. So separating the impact from the intention by talking about what it feels like for you when the person says the thing. I want to say for the record, we don't have an Aunt Petunia, so... This is a fictional person. Yeah, okay. And actually, our aunts are... Great. Yeah. Liberal, open-minded. Surprisingly. Yeah. Even even the religious ones. And genuinely open to conversations that are about things that they haven't, like, thought about too much, but kind of yeah. took for granted because of the prevailing. So so just were, yeah. I was delighted the I one time. I don't want any of our relatives to be like, what? what? Talking to Aunt Sally. If I haven't yelled at you, then no, it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a conversation with Aunt Sally about uh, depression. Yeah. And about my uh, use of dopamine agonists instead of serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And what I told her was that dopamine was my neurotransmitter of choice, mm-hmm. if you know what that means. And she went, yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> that was like, oh, right. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. Skill number three. This is my favorite one. Okay. The most important thing that I, this is Emily, have learned in a lifetime of having strong opinions and expressing them forcefully is that if I disagree with something, it is always the case that there is something I don't know. I am missing some piece of information. If I find myself asking the question, how could they possibly believe this stupid bullshit? That's not a rhetorical question. How could it be that they believe this stupid bullshit? And the way you find out how they could believe this stupid bullshit is to slow the conversation way down. You say something like, "I'm hang on one sec, I'm just not sure I'm understanding Aunt Petunia. What I hear you saying is blah. Is, is, is that right? Search for the missing piece. Figure it out. What is the belief they're assuming you share or don't even know they hold that allows them to think about the world that they do? Mm-hmm. There's a list of rules formulated by Anatole Rappaport, who's, I think, the founder of game theory, but I'm not sure. But he's best known for originating the famous tit-for-tat strategy of game theory. In his book, Intuition Pumps, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, summarizes it with these four rules. One, attempt to re-express the other person's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that they say, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Number two, list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. So not we agree that the sky is blue, but we agree that humans have bodies and their social role matters. Three, Mention anything you have learned from the person. And four, then, and only then, can you say even one word of rebuttal or criticism. Not only will these four steps restate the person's position better than they said it, point out where you agree, mention something you learned, and then offer any kind of critique. Not only does this give you an opportunity to understand how anyone could believe this stupid bullshit. It can also provide an opportunity for this person to show everyone at the table 
just how stupid that bullshit is, it might even be an opportunity for them to gain insight through this Socratic questioning process into how bullshit their stupid thing is. To sum up, this is still Emily because this is mostly my way of doing things. Mm -hmm. If you decide to engage, do not bring facts to a feelings fight. Unless you just want to fight. If um, you want to fight, like, go ahead and fight. It's fine. Some people are comfortable with it. Just be ready to deal with the emotional ramifications. Tell stories in the framework of when you say X, I feel Y. And be a spy. Genuinely try to understand what's going on with this person so that you can understand precisely why and how they believe this bullshit. That way you carry something away from the conversation, which is insider knowledge on how such a crazy idea could actually hold any power with anyone. And then there's shutting it down. Down! We've got two approaches. First, you can do it remorselessly. Do not engage. Confront. <clears throat> For example... From the words you're saying, and the heartlessness which with you're saying it, you're showing me that you're too uninformed to have an opinion worth expressing, and too intellectually rigid to be worth teaching, not to mention too vicious to be worth the time of loving God whom you claim to worship. Fortunately, most people disagree with you, and the mere passage of time is all it will take to make you and your ignorant, cruel opinions to be obsolete. That's why I'm just not going to waste my time engaging in a conversation about anything that actually matters to me or the world. Would you like some potatoes? And when they respond with anything other than an answer about potatoes, you can you can keep going with the here's all the reasons why I'm not going to argue with you or just say, would you like the potatoes? Aunt Mary, would you like the potatoes? Mom, would you like the potatoes? Dad? And then turn your attention irrevocably away from them. You have shut them down. The hard part now is not getting hooked back in. You built a wall. The reason you said this was to end your participation. The other person may, and almost they, certainly will, yeah. go on expressing their ignorant, cruel opinions to other people who may bother to humor them, but you will not engage. Feel free to go to a different room. Because the vulnerable person in the room who you wanted to make sure heard you say that heard you say that, and now you get to protect your boundaries. If the person pursues you, follows you, tries to continue the conversation... Because they might. Repeat your no calmly, yet firmly. It feels so good. If you get to a third no without them listening to you, say that. This is the third time I have told you no. I will not talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Clearly, you need to talk about it, and I recommend you talk to someone, anyone, who is willing to engage with you. I am not. I'm not going to do this. If you talk to me about it again, what's the consequence that matters to that person? I'm leaving, or I'm just going to go to my room, or like, we're just going to talk about potatoes and that's it. Or I'm going to insist that you leave if it's your house. Oh, if it's your house. Or if it's in the house of someone whom you can be like, look, in order for people not to feel attacked and unsafe, what I need is for you to get this person and their oppressive opinion out of the house. Mm -hmm. Does this sound extreme? Yeah. Does it sound like we're joking? I mean, it is a little bit. No. A joke. No, it's fucking not. These are real things that happen in your head, right? Yeah. When the asshole relatives say their stupid asshole things, we're just thinking through what's actually could happen in real life. If you went ahead and said the thing in your head that happens when they say the stupid bullshit things. Yeah. You're allowed to protect your boundaries, your sanity, your energy. You are allowed to do that no matter what human giver syndrome has to say about it. You do not have to smile and go, mm, mm, and then just change the opinion. And then deal with the rage that has accrued in your brain 
and is now burning a hole through your amygdala. And so you scream at your partner in the car on the ride home the whole time. I don't say that from any kind of personal experience. (laughs) (laughs) Strategy two, if you decide not to engage. Remember, you're not engaging if they are using binaries as weapons. You are not engaging if they're trying to argue about facts over which neither of you is master. Our second strategy. You're also not engaging if you decide that when you go home later tonight. It's not going to be worth it. You're going to feel like it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Which is me a lot of the time. I go home and beat the shit out of myself if I couldn't perfectly argue and persuade the person. Mm -hmm. So I, my way of not engaging is the second strategy, which is to melt like a toddler who doesn't want to be picked up. You just slide right out of it. You just wiggle, worm your way. I'm I'm not interested in talking about it. You know, we're not going to change each other's minds, so let's enjoy the day. Agree to disagree. Yeah. Oh, God, I hate that so much. Especially if you've got a relative who knows that you disagree about this, knows that it pushes your buttons when they talk about it, and so they talk about it to push your buttons. The best way to deal with a person like this is to slither away. You be like a palm tree that bends in the wind. You do the whatever the martial arts thing is where you use the other person's energy against them. Thank you, There was the president of one of my community choirs that I conducted who I spoke to rather frankly about my doctoral program. And she taught me an expression that still lives in my head to this day. Think whatever you want, smile and nod. Smile and nod and think whatever you want. That never, ever worked for me. But it's an idea that I aspire to. But if I think whatever, like I just feel terrible about having done it. I feel like it's the wrong choice for me. Mm -hmm. I always hate the fact that I did that. But it is a skill that served her and many, many people smile and nod and think whatever you want. I think the difference is in our difference in relationship with rage. Mm. Like when when I get home, I know that I can hold on to my rage for right now and then go home and do the things I need to do to purge it. Yeah. Whereas like I only discovered that I even had rage like eight years ago. So like when you feel it, you have to let it go now. now. I, I don't have any... Because when it's happening in the moment, that's when you have the capacity to let it go. Whereas if you hold on to it, it's just going to like lodge itself somewhere in your body and probably put you in the hospital again. I'm not, I'm sorry to laugh. No, but like legit, like if I, if the rage happens, like I need to deal with it right. It's like buying milk. It either has to go in the fridge or you have to drink it right away. And I don't have a rage fridge. I have nowhere to preserve it. Right. I have a rage fridge. No, no, no. I had a rage fridge and it got so full that it overgrew with like mold and mildew and fucking got me in the hospital. Yeah. And like the rage fridge is closed now. I got rid of that motherfucker. And the only one you could replace it with was a little dorm room fridge. Yeah. I have like, exactly. I have a little mini fridge where I keep like a six pack of rage. And that's all I have room for. And the rest of it I deal with as soon as I buy it, which is as soon as an interaction happens that like sparks that reaction. So the surprise twist insight at the end of our conversation (laughs) about how to deal with your racist uncle, your apathetic aunt or your misogynist cousin is it's going to depend on how big your and effective your rage fridge is. Yeah. Can you hold on to it? Can you smile? And also it depends on the vulnerability of the people in the room. If you stand up for the vulnerable people. Is there going to be somebody in that room who sees you doing that and their life is made better because you did it? Like, it's not just for you that you're choosing to do this or not. Um, it's, it's almost never for you. It's for the people around you yeah. who get to see it. That's way more common. For me, as a you know middle-class white lady. 
Yeah. We're walking around with buttloads of privilege at this yeah. point. Yeah. And and when we go to a holiday event of any kind, we have almost nothing to lose. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're happy to write people off. <laughs> Perfectly happy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if you're a Trump supporter. You're just, I just don't give a shit. Yeah, I just, I just do not know. Just fuck you. I hope some of this was helpful. We talked about uh, some key things that will help you decide whether or not to engage, some strategies for how to engage. If you choose to. And two strategies for shutting it down. One, the direct attack approach, and one, the wiggle away. Yeah. Like a squirmy toddler. Yeah. Smile and nod and think anything you want. Mm -hmm. Smile and nod. Think whatever you want. And that is our take on how to survive Thanksgiving with relatives who make you bananas. And that's our episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. We hope you survive your holiday if you celebrate. We dare we even hope that you experience love and joy in your connection with your family of choice Yay. and not just bare minimum survival by managing your family of origin. That would be so great. Oh, I hope that's true. We wish that for you. So that's it. If any of this was written, it was written by us, Emily Nagoski. If it was produced, it was produced by my marital euphemism. And the music is by... Amelia. Feel free to follow along on Twitter or Instagram at FSP2020 and email us at feministsurvivalproject2020 at gmail.com. Let us know, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Are you going to confront your people? Are there traditions that you enjoy upholding? Traditions you're interested in blowing the shit out of? How big is your rage fridge? And how much are you holding in there? When was the last time you cleaned it out? <laughs> Thanks for listening. If I haven't yelled at you, then no, it's not you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>